one of the things we might talk about is uh, how I tried to write for Wisecrack and how that went down. And as an Orthodox Marxist, how you had to put me in my place sometimes or how it didn't ultimately work out. Sure. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, wanna... I told you I, I made time. I told you I would do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to mention what we're going to talk about in the parrot room and make it sound really, you know, uh, juicy. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. Jared Bauer is the director and writer behind the YouTube channel Wisecrack. He was known for producing and hosting the series The Philosophy of Blank. That could be like the philosophy of, I don't know, Keanu Reeves or the philosophy of Rick and Morty or the philosophy of Shia LaBeouf. Um, Jared is no longer with Wisecrack, but has moved to Finland, and he's here today to talk to me about Hollywood, YouTube, and cancel culture. Jared, welcome to Zero Books. You reached out to me after reading Ben Burgess's book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. In fact, this interview we're doing will be released at the same time that you're interviewing, or when you release the interview with Ben Burgess, uh, and that will be on your channel, so people who are watching this can go directly to your channel after and, and uh, hear what you have to say to Ben. But what was it about Burgess's book that appealed to you enough that you wanted to talk to him after reading it? Well, uh, I'm very grateful that he wrote it. And I think that it's a voice that has needed to be expressed for a very long time now. And cancel culture was something that I saw firsthand in Hollywood. Um, I think the impotence of it is something that he writes about is uh, very clear. I think that, uh, you know, his overall argument in the book is that it's just strategically bad for the left. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people have said, but it requires so much courage to say it. And even in the introduction of the book, he talks about how both you and him were very aware that there would be some pushback. Um, and so really after leaving Hollywood and realizing I no longer have this burden of needing to kind of walk the appropriate ideological line in order to be hireable in any writer's room or anything like that, I have been focusing more on just the general lack of courage that people have uh, and the spiral of silence that is able to be maintained over years just because people don't want to compromise their career or the positions that they're in or their friendships or their family relationships. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really grateful that Ben stepped up to say some things that on one hand are very obvious, but unfortunately needed to be said. You're talking about cancel culture in Hollywood. And when I think about cancel culture, as it emerges from the left, like from left activists and left theorists, and even from university professors that are uh, working out with the left theory, um, it seems to me easy to understand how the urge to cancel would would 
emerge because you have a doctrine or a set of beliefs that you want to impose upon or use to guide a change in the world and you want to stamp out uh like the evils that you see in the world like racism and sexism and, and so on and so if as an activist the urge or the temptation to use uh this strategy which i think is backfires the canceling strategy seems kind of obvious but in hollywood i just I'm not quite sure why it would emerge as a, an ideology that everyone had to adhere to, uh, whether you might call it woke culture or cancel culture. Um, and because I don't think of Hollywood as primarily an activist space or a, a, a space with a political Well, it's mission. fake activism. Right. It's all limousine liberals and uh, basically people wearing activism like it's a fashion statement, but it's very hollow. It's all bullshit. As a matter of fact, I really think that Hollywood's um, adoption of, you know, woke hiring practices and woke ideologies, whether it be Star Wars, I think is really just an extension of a just corporate culture of being extremely careful about litigation. I mean, really, I think that these companies are just overly cautious about basically like lawsuits. And that has kind of trickled down to being overly cautious about culture. And especially when you're a limousine liberal and you're like a gajillionaire and you run one of these studios or you run one of these talent agencies or you're directing a film, you really don't have much of a leg to stand on. And I find that, or like morally, you don't have much of a leg to stand on. And I find that very often, you know, the classic like, race is a scapegoat for class, they will kind of adopt these woke principles and put them throughout their organization as a way to distract from the fact that like the very class division between them who are outrageously wealthy and, you know, the people working for them is the real problem. Um, mm -hmm. And as far as, and I agree with you on the, the understandable notion that if you want to make change in the world, you want to defeat racism, you want to defeat homophobia, et cetera, that deplatforming people that you think are spreading these ideas is also understandable. And in this notion, although we're filming this asynchronously, so I haven't talked to Ben yet, but I, I feel like I might even be a little bit more sympathetic to Ben in that I do think that comedians especially, but also books, movies, prestige television do have a pretty profound effect on the world. And I think that we're in a state where people don't really know what to do with that. Because if art is kind of socially engineering the world anyway, then why shouldn't we think of ourselves as social engineers instead of artists? And my philosophy on that is that you just can't do that because it will never work. But I see, I see where that impulse comes. So I'm also uh, sympathetic to the effort and I think there's good intention, but I don't even remember what the saying is exactly, but shitty things happen with good intentions. Well, see, I don't agree that art um, engineers the world. You know, I don't think that actually, I don't think not, that not deterministically, but yeah, sorry, go on. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of an, an Orthodox Marxist. And actually, uh, <clears throat> if we, if you can stick around for a second half, one of the things we might talk about is 
uh, how I tried to write for Wisecrack and how that went down. And as an Orthodox Marxist, how you had to put me in my place sometimes or how it didn't ultimately work out. Sure. Yeah. yeah no, I, 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 I told you I, I made time. I told you I would do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to mention what we're going to talk about in the parrot room and make it sound really, you know, uh, juicy so that people mm-hmm. will flip over <laughs> to the parrot room. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that the idea that, that, what we express culturally will determine or even have a, uh, trackable causal relationship to the way people behave out in the world, um, should be questioned. I think that the, the best art helps people to break free from ideologies that they're not aware of. Um, and that helps them to think, helps them to mm-hmm. reexamine their assumptions, puts them in places or helps them identify with characters that they wouldn't normally experience um, and gives people the ability to be a bit freer because they've had the experience of, of, of going beyond their, you know, the, what they may be the ideology they're born into or the, the ideology of their neighborhood or what have you. But I think that there are these institutions and structures, economic structures that really push people around in, in a much more determined way and that but we have to address those if we really want to see substantial change and no amount of saying the right thing or telling the right stories is going to over help us overcome like even the homelessness problem in downtown Portland or uh, you know, the, the, or U S foreign policy or, you know, or any of these major mm-hmm. issues. Um, but I do think that it's, tempting to there are lots of reasons why people disagree with me some of them are actually based on philosophical disagreements and political disagreements that emerged over the last 50 years some of them uh, have to do with you know if you are in hollywood it's you know it's flattering to yourself to believe oh yeah the stories i tell are going to really change the way people think out there in the world Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but do you think here's a question for you and rather than just have to respond to all my statements do you think that some of the people who are uh, uh, adopting this woke culture and and maybe even trying to enforce it are thinking of themselves as artists, revolutionaries or artists, activists um, in a sincere way? Yes, some of them. Uh, but I. So I want to go back to what you said about. So, so there's a bunch of things. So. First of all, in terms of art changing the world, I think really the the things that I would point to are really more about art really affecting, and specifically comedy, really more affecting social relations, um, especially race relations. So for example, I, I mean, and it's very hard to measure, but I really do think that Richard Pryor made a significant impact in uh, kind of chipping away at the divide between black and white America because he allowed white people to kind of laugh at themselves at the way that they see themselves and the way that they see themselves in contrast to black Americans. Mm -hmm. In my uh, high school experience, I very much experienced a very similar thing with Dave Chappelle. I went to high school in Houston, Texas, and my high school was like 60% African American and really the, and, and it was very culturally divided in the sense that most of the African-American kids had their own clique and then most of the non-black kids had their own clique. And the one thing that we could all celebrate was Chappelle's show. And Mm -hmm. it had a pretty significant impact in kind of bridging a similar divide. The other thing that I always point to is the show Will and Grace. 
And, and again, I can't really back this up with any evidence, but I really do think that Will and Grace did more to expedite uh, the progress that homosexuals have experienced in the last 20 years more than any politician. Uh, because again, like through comedy, comedy has this unique ability to disarm you. It has a, an ability to see, I, I, you know, maybe I don't consider myself a Marxist, but I do have a materialist perspective of comedy in that mm. I think that something is not funny because it's true. I think that something is true because it's funny in that the material conditions of the world that dictates what is funny. It's not these high ideals that dictate what is funny. So for example, when George Carlin in the nineties would talk or in like the early nineties, I think it was the early nineties talked about uh, his rant about atheism and how uh, Joe Pesci has done more with a baseball bat than God has in millions of years. Mm -hmm. It's hard to remember that back then this was before Dawkins. This was before Hitchens. This is before the new atheism movement. That was the kind of thing that even people who considered themselves to be devout Christians would laugh at. They couldn't help but laugh at it. And I think mm -hmm. that, the notion that they laughed at that made them consider something that they would have never considered before. And I think that that is a unique element of comedy that really does have more philosophical weight than even a show like Breaking Bad, which as great as it is, hasn't really moved the conversation towards single payer universal health care at all. Well, OK, I'm, I think we should um, we'll table this disagreement about the import of of culture because I can't truly disagree with like your story about Dave Chappelle or Will and Grace. I mean, it's clear that culture does it's all anecdotal. Influence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's clear that it has an influence and people have the experience of, of, an, of art opening up their world or changing their perspective. And I don't want to disagree with that. I just would question. Uh, I, I would say that perhaps these moments where someone like Chappelle comes forward and, and can bridge the gap between black and white, or uh, it may be that if it wasn't him, it would be someone, you know, that there are, these things are happening on a multiple levels and, uh, and then they get expressed in the culture. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that's, a, a, that would just be at this point, just like a fundamental uh, yeah, so I, I remember intuition. the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I remember ahead. the other thing I was going to say that goes back to more of your uh, like kind of the economic systems that uh, that bring about, or, or the economic systems being the main motivator of what's going on. And I, that's actually a point I agree with. Um, mm -hmm. But if you wanted to move the direction another, uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. Okay, so this is also uh, very much connects with cancel culture. So one of the things that I saw in Hollywood and, and the way that I describe my time in Hollywood and the kind of conversations and the kind of people and the overall vibe is that it's a place of desperation and narcissism. And the reason for that is that you've got all these people from all these towns in America, you know, it's either the top hottest 1% or the top most talented 1% all move there. And their whole identity is based on the notion that they're going to move to Hollywood and they're going to make it. And when you have people that their success is so heavily tied to their identity and their sense of self and their sense of self-worth and so tied up in how their community views them back home, you find a lot of people who are willing to do anything to succeed. And where this goes into the economic system is that these people have all their eggs in one basket. I mean, I was one of them. 
in the sense that there's no safety net. There's no social safety net. You know, these people, most of them, sadly, are in a lot of college debt uh, for studying entertainment. So, man, I better make it in this industry or else I'm going to have to go back to school and get in more debt just to find another career. So I'm very Mm -hmm. sympathetic towards. And so anyway, like it creates this pathology that I'm also very sympathetic to in which people will often, and I think even in Ben's book, he talks about the vampire's castle, which is the Mark Fisher thing. Mm -hmm. And part of that castle as it manifests in Hollywood is the sense that there's kind of a race to perform a certain moral stance by uh, essentializing the enemy and uh, because it can get you more Twitter followers and Mm -hmm. it can get you more success in the industry. There's a woman, and I'm not going to say her name, maybe I'll say it for the uh, after Patreon thing, but there's a female comedian who got fame, who is a famous victim, and that victimhood got her an HBO special. And uh, no one, and you know, I'm not saying she's not funny. I mean, she's not funny to me, but I mean, I'm sure people have their own tastes and I'm not here to say that. But the point is, is nobody knew who she was until she canceled an ex-boyfriend. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that she did that intentionally um, because I don't know this person. There are other people that I know that I would feel comfortable making that uh, accusation towards. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know if they're doing it consciously because I think once again, the economic pressure is so severe and these people are in such compromised positions economically that I don't even blame them for doing these horrible things subconsciously because what else are they going to do? They're in debt. They have all their eggs mm-hmm. in one basket. They're aging. And in Hollywood, age is bad. You know, mm-hmm. like, especially if you're there to be an actor or an actress, you know, your marketability goes down and down with every year. These but people not are just desperate. For actresses, right? Writers, too. I mean, pretty much mm-hmm. on every level, young is good and old is bad in Hollywood. Right. 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 So these people are desperate. And so, I, I mean, I, I do have some sympathy. And I think, you know, even just living here in Finland for three weeks, seeing, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it hasn't been very long. So it's hard for me to really say that. The social mm-hmm. safety nets here make a big difference, but things are definitely not as divisive and you really don't see people who are as just dogmatically inquisitive about your moral stances that you do in, well, I can really only speak for Hollywood because it's the only town I've lived in as an adult. Mm-hmm. So when you went to Hollywood, um, was this, I mean, woke culture or this, moral posturing as prevalent did you see it develop uh oh yeah no i don't think it really existed i mean i I got there in 2010 i lived there from 2010 to mid 2021 Mm -hmm. and i i usually tell people like 2015 is when it all started i mean i think that really once trump started to get and this might be a correlation more than a causation thing but i think once trump really started to become apparently a very viable candidate, things started to get kind of bad. Man, I remember, and maybe it was the same way in Portland, but the day after he won, the tension in the air was so thick you could cut it with a knife. I mean, you know, I, I went into work and like everyone was just despondent. Um, but anyway, no, yeah, I, it, it, uh, at the time, my my ex wife was in nursing school. And mm-hmm. an email went out to all the nurses, nursing students, uh, 
that that if they needed counseling due to the results of the election, that it was available to them. I was just going to uh, share a similar anecdote. I had a very close friend who was doing her dissertation at Penn, and the night of the election, they sent out <laughs> they sent out an email that said there was going to be a safe space in the auditorium with a puppy that people can play with <laughs> if if they're upset. So I love that they had a, sp a safe space puppy for the election. <laughs> <laughs> There's two things that kind of mark the big cultural change for me is that, first of all, I had two girlfriends before 2015 that were um, much more into critical social justice than I was, but it didn't matter. Like we just didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was brought up on a daily basis. You know, maybe it came up once a month. Mm -hmm. I don't think that those, those relationships exist anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. if, if people are in relationships, it's either coming up all these disagreements are either coming up all the time or they're just necessarily on the same page. Right. But the other thing is my show thug notes, which in 2013, when it came out was very well received by even, I mean, I, I don't know if I don't, maybe like liberal media, not left-wing media, but like mm -hmm. the New York Times wrote about it, and Greg and I were, in, Greg who plays Sparky Sweets, the main character, were interviewed on NPR, and everybody was very celebratory of the idea. Now, why don't you tell everyone, in case people don't know about Thug Notes, just what the idea of Thug Notes was? Sure. So Thug Notes was the first show on Wisecrack. That was kind of the show that started the business, and the idea was basically a. Uh, maybe for people who are listeners outside of America, they don't know what cliff notes are. So cliff notes is like if you have to read War and Peace for school, well, that's a very hard book to get through. And who's got the time? So you just read the cliff notes, which is a very small book that basically just summarizes it for you. So you can essentially cheat on the test or whatever. So I made a parody of that with a partnership between an old friend I went to school with, plus my business partner, Jacob, plus this comedian named Greg Edwards that I was introduced to in LA and it was called thug notes. And, and the idea was to, excuse me, to take classic literature and not only the literature itself in terms of the narratives, but also the kind of ivory tower analysis that people will often have to use for either collegiate or high school level English classes and bring that down to basically like street language, to the most like basic language that everybody can understand. And also, you know, Greg's a stand-up comedian. The idea was to make it funny and to make people passionate about reading again. And the thing about the project is that we were extremely precise about getting the texts right. And we were extremely, it was extremely important that we were always reverent to the texts. And I think that all of those liberal media outlets that I mentioned were, they knew that. And, uh, you know, they understood the unfortunately lost distinction now that there is a joke that can be about race without being racist. Mm -hmm. Now, we never I was very careful. I was a choir boy about this in that I never like I never credited myself as a director or co-writer on any of the episodes, even though I co-wrote and directed all 110 episodes. Uh, I, I just didn't really, and I didn't, I never had a Twitter account. And so I was always careful, but actually at the beginning, it wasn't even that I was afraid of wokeness because that didn't exist yet. It was really more that I was really inspired by the South African rap 
group DeAntward, and I really liked their whole like performance art thing. And I kind of wanted to maintain the myth of the real character for as long as I could. But we stopped the show in 2017 uh, for a number of reasons, not all of them about fear of cancellation, but that was a significant mm-hmm. one. And I got to tell you, my conversation with Greg about that was very interesting. Uh, and it wasn't because he wanted the show to keep going and I wanted mm-hmm. the show to keep going. But I told him, like, look, like um, and there were like a handful of articles that came out, but never not a lot of them made a lot got uh, articles that came out condemning you know, my identity and like, what right do I have to write in Ebonics, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of them really got any traction. And I think that's largely just because the show was like four or five years old and just kind of old news by then. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, and, and the conversation between Greg and I wasn't contentious at all, but it was just interesting because I think that there were um, kind of, racialized elements of the working relationship that both of us were kind of learning from each other, even though we had been doing the project for five years, there were things that both of us hadn't considered. And so it was a very interesting conversation. Can can you give me Um, an example of, of one of the elements of the, of the racialized dynamic that you hadn't realized until that moment? Yeah. So for example, um, well, Greg, I kind of made the case to Greg that looked like, can you, well, so first of all, one of the things that we were considering doing, because I, at the time I was just also just too busy to keep writing the episodes because, you know, the main moneymaker was the Wisecrack edition and we just had to keep pumping those out. And those also were a lot of work, as you well know. Um, and so I told him like, all right, well, uh, you know, we're thinking about hiring someone else to run the show and it would necessarily have to be maybe someone of color. And he didn't. And he was like, oh, but, you know, it's been going so well for so long, like I would want you to uh you know at least have review of whatever this person that we hire does and i said to him like yeah but can you imagine me rewriting uh ebonics that a black person wrote you know like can you imagine like the the strange social dynamic that would be for me to stick my hand in and say yeah i kind of want to change this ebonics term to that ebonics term And uh, like that was one thing that like just made him laugh because he was like, yeah, I guess that would be kind of uh, kind of a strange dynamic. Um, I'd never thought of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like and then Greg had told me that like there had been a handful of people that had, uh, you know, told him that he didn't think that they didn't think that the show was like a positive image for black people. And of course, I anticipated that kind of thing. But, um, you know, Greg's answer to that, and, you know, I have plenty of my own kind of, quote unquote, defenses for the premise of the show. But um, his thing was that, like, look, like, I've been a black actor for a long time. And, uh, well, you know, for as long as he's been an actor, he's been a black actor. But he said, but, you know, he said, like, um, there have been uh, black actors are just grateful to get work and when it comes to negative portrayals of african americans in in media at least this character that we created is intelligent thoughtful and so literate interested literate. In, in great books right so the idea like i think what he was trying to communicating to me is like hey you know if you watch a show that has like black gangster characters who are violent 
understandable that someone walking down the street might get scared if they see a black person wearing, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of clothes. But if somebody grew up watching Sparky Sweet's PhD on Thug Notes, who also wears similar like urban street clothes, they might be less afraid. And that was something that really resonated with me and made me kind of have a greater understanding of perhaps why he wanted to continue the show. And I was very sympathetic to that. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there was also uh, financial reasons. The show was the most expensive show to make because there was animation. Uh, At a certain point, we had to like hire outside people to read the books um, and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And but you also canc- canceled that show because of the changing political climate. Yes. And the fear yes, I was afraid was, you know, because another thing was that I was now becoming more of a public face of the brand mm-hmm. and uh therefore like the brand's whole you know marketability was bound up in my face and you know all it takes is one article by you know, the, the articles that I mentioned that never got a lot of traction weren't by big publications. There were more just independent blogs. But all it takes is like one. Let's. Uh, what's that? Whatever. Just like one blog that has a lot of viewership to cast doubt on my integrity as a person for sponsors whole, to back out. Yeah. And for yeah. the whole thing to go south on you. Um, exactly. Do you think do you think that. um well, I want to talk to you about this parasocial part of YouTube and how we end up turning ourselves into commodities when we try to make a YouTube channel. But um, before I do that, do, do you think that, I mean, you gave one example here with Thug Notes where the fear of being canceled and the, the general climate um, ended a project that was probably very much worthwhile Um I mean, I, I think it was worthwhile. And uh, do you think that overall that woke culture is detrimental to filmmaking? Do you think that this is maybe an odd question, but do you think that the fact that the Marvel universe is like the only way that Hollywood seems to be able to make money these days or like, you know, that the the level of filmmaking tends to be more juvenile now um, ha- might have something to do with woke culture, that it's easier to make films yeah which are maybe like simplistic maybe it has like less than five percent but most of it is economic most of it is the fact that it's extremely expensive to make a movie um and you know it's it's uh it's easy to forget that hollywood is one of the last real union towns there is and you know that's something that i support but at the same time when you have tiktokers and youtubers and video games and stuff like that to compete with in this new landscape um that all do not have those kind of unionized features and so are much less expensive to make and have much higher profit margins that's why there's kind of only one business model left which is the giant marvel movie that costs half a billion to make and makes two billion right so i mean that, that know, that's really more more significant than the woke thing i think woke yeah. really is more of an effect on comedy and just like the the kind of things that people can and can't comment on but in terms of the amount of movies made and the overall decline of cinema i don't think it's as relevant as the economic factors yeah uh just on a just as a side note on the economic factors 
as I've tried to make YouTube videos and, you know, I've done a lot of found footage, doc, uh, little mini docs and things. One of the things I've realized is that just having a camera and a, and even a good editing suite and even after effects isn't good enough. Like you have to have someone behind mm. the camera who knows what they're doing. You have to have performers that are, are pretty good, but that's not the most important thing. But even like just to get a shot, uh, like to film a scene in a diner, say you have to, to do that is expensive. You have to have lighting. Oh, yeah. You have to have set design. You have to have, you know, the, you might have to rent the diner or, or build a diner. Yeah. A diner. I mean, it's just, um, the, you have to make the, it financially palatable for someone to close a business for the whole day, which means you basically have to give them their revenue for the day at least. Right. Right. Or if you're like a guerrilla filmmaker, you have to like, sneak in and have shitty sound and terrible lighting and, mm -hmm. and a, a look that no one will want to watch. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, even though the equipment, you know, is accessible now, I think to most people, you know, it's the, it, the video equipment. It's not that hard to get, but actually filming is still expensive. You want to talk about that? Like one of the things that you've run up. Well, yeah. Or? Well, the so the, the one thing I disagree with there is that like this phone right here, which is an iPhone 12, has a better camera on it than cameras that cost $500 a day to rent when I was in film school. Um, right. Like there's that f filmmaker that made the movie Tangerine. Did you see that? Uh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Was, that was filmed entirely no, on an iPhone. And I, but I, I agree. So, so, like so. I have that too. Like I have a film, a camera that does just a pixel and it's got a great camera on it and I, I can mm -hmm. shoot, but it, but the camera's not everything. Right. I Go think ahead. the bigger detriment is the market in the sense that, um, so are you familiar with the director Uwe Boll? He's like considered the worst director ever. No, but, but, but so he, he makes a lot of video game. He's this mm. German guy who makes a lot of video game movies. And so like, if you're a gamer, you kind of hate him because he was very famous for buying up this video game IP and then just making the laziest, crappiest movie version of the mm. video game. Now, the reason I bring him up is because he, although he's a bad filmmaker, he's a very interesting businessman because he raised his own money. And so when he stepped on set as a director, nobody could tell him what to do, which is uh, an interesting thing. But there's a documentary about him and he talks about the fall of the independent film market. And he would he said that in 2005, the amount of money that he could make for selling the uh, video home video rights to um, I think it was either just Japan or maybe Japan and some surrounding Asian countries was a million dollars. Which, you know, if you have a successful independent film and you spend, uh, you know, independent films back then micro budget was still considered like 5 million, you know, then that's a, that's a big success. And then you can continue to sell to other, um, other areas as well. He says now between 2005 and 2012, that million dollars is now $10,000 because there's no home video market anymore because of streaming. And there's just no real distribution model for independent cinema anymore, unless you're just getting hired by Netflix to make something. But even that, I don't even really think you can, can consider independent. I mean, it's not. It's Netflix is just another studio, except it's more Silicon Valley than it is Hollywood. So uh, I think that, yes, it's expensive to make films. 
it always will be. I think maybe it's a little bit cheaper now to make something that looks good. I think you're totally right about sound, though. And I think sound ultimately is more of a sign of quality than visuals. But there's just nowhere to put this stuff. There's no market for it. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I guess you would think that this leads me to my next question, and maybe something we'll talk about more in length in, uh, in the parrot room or for patrons. But um, uh, what do you think about independent filmmakers migrating to platforms like Vimeo or YouTube or other kinds of no no barrier no barrier to entry platforms that do streaming and, and why are there is any that you not have a mic no I, I don't know oh. like i don't i just you know you ever heard of stan brackage do you know stan brackage he, uh, I, he's streaming? very avant-garde right right very avant-garde dead uh 70, 60s, 70s 80s filmmaker um non-narrative you know meditative films on images um and i just think if he was alive today he'd be making youtube videos like mm -hmm. crazy you know but mm -hmm. uh, but um but they're not really there you don't see like avant that uh, avant-garde youtube channels really you don't see um independent movies being put up on youtube or you might see them on vimeo but um i'm not sure what the model is or how people make money off vimeo if they do uh well, what do you I, think? I don't not not that I know of. I've never yeah. heard of anyone making money off of Vimeo. I don't, I don't. I've never really experimented off of Vimeo. Honestly, I've I've always thought of Vimeo as just a more pretentious link to give somebody than YouTube. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so and I just think that many people who do have voices on YouTube, maybe in a parallel timeline where they were born like 15 years earlier, might have expressed that through independent film. But now YouTube and the platform, which is something I understood, unfortunately, way too late, was that, you know, the platform really is about those parasocial relationships. So there are a handful of success stories about like is didn't uh that brooklyn show with the two girls uh it's escaping me you know what i'm talking about the two girls no you know i'm, I'm terrible New York. Uh, yeah okay. i'm terrible at this kind of stuff so broad city broad city yeah okay you know yeah, broad I've city is broad, okay i think city, that started yeah. off as a youtube show and, and there are those those success stories of people that start off in digital and then make it to hollywood but in general I think that it's it's just a lot of work and not a lot of return to do narrative stuff on YouTube because that's not what the platform is. It's about relationships. It's the digital friends industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it is a social media platform. Right. It's not it's not a a streaming service platform. Uh, it's yeah, not it's, it's platform. Yeah, it's not a digital cinema. Right. Um, Having said that, there, there, there. You know, YouTube is so big; it's so much bigger than television right now, just in terms of the amount of money it brings in, the amount of content that's out there. That there's exceptions to every rule, right? No, I, I know. I do. I do feel like, on the one hand, uh, the independent market is gone, but on the other hand, the the number of independent video creators is just uh, you can't even 
I don't know the number. It's got to be millions and millions, you know. Yeah. Or, so uh, it's a weird moment. Um, so let me go back to Wisecrack. I, oh, sure. I, I actually had a question. I had a question for you, though, because I know that you're a sci-fi writer. Mm-hmm. Um, was like, did you ever consider taking your sci-fi works and trying to adapt them to a screenplay for some kind of like a Hollywood adaptation? Yeah, the last one behind me, Batch Batch Revolution, I sort of put out feelers and had an idea and started to write. I wrote a short uh, to to kind of and, and had a guy who was going to work on it with me and it sort of fell apart. And it's unfortunate. Um, and the work with Zero got to be uh, more and more intense. So I didn't get it off. The- Let me go on to the last thing. Like, why did you end up leaving Wisecrack and uh, how much of that had to do with the limitations of YouTube. So I was really, it was a lot of, it was very stressful. I started the company with my best friend who was, who his previous job was very much in the tech world. And he very much wanted to create a business. He wanted to create a company. He had people that were interested in investing in a project of his, and he wanted to take advantage of that. And during 2013, it was, a very different time, there was much more optimism about digital media eventually being able to command similar ad revenue to television. Mm-hmm. That never happened, obviously. Um, and so it was very stressful. And I was under a lot of pressure, not only because we had investors, but also because it was my best friend. His business reputation was on the line. And as soon as I started introducing myself to the channel, which in terms of numbers and revenue was the best that the company ever did and ultimately allowed us to sell the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we did like exit successfully, thank God. But um, it just, I got burned out really, really bad uh, because once I introduced myself to it, like that pressure is now just kind of turns into self-hatred because now it's not only that like my project is disappointing my best friend or my project is you know uh, underperforming but it's like i am elementally not likable enough or my vision or my uh you know what i think is interesting is not marketable enough and it just created and all of that just snowballs in a place like hollywood with such extreme wealth division with you know the saying that you don't have friends in Hollywood, you only have allies. Really, it's very easy, even though you may be surrounded by people who claim to like you, it's actually quite easy to feel very isolated and very alone. And I mean, long story short, like my mental health just couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. I grew to dread waking up in the morning to work. Uh, Another thing was I was just very out of ideas. Like I really had basically made a video about everything that I knew about and loved. Mm -hmm. And um, also, you know, when you're, when you're trying to make a YouTube channel, that's profitable, and you're trying to make a compelling, uh, you know, value proposition to advertisers, you have to promise a certain amount of viewership. And that also just makes the amount of things that you can talk about extremely narrow. Because obviously, things like Marvel tend to perform well, then, you know, if I did a video on last year at Marion Bad or something like that. So it just became a real creative rut that I was just in for years. 
and just trying and trying to, and, and you know, it's also just a strange place to be in when you're like, okay, we can hit our goal this week. If this week's episode of Rick and Morty has a smart angle to it, you know, like it's just a weird <laughs> place to be in. Like, and, and you also just, you know, film and cinema was my religion. It was like really my first love in life. And it, it, and it was very much a crutch for me all throughout life and turning that love into the thing that allowed me to make payroll and pay our small amount of employees really took the love away and kind of left me without any kind of crutch. And it just right. kind of expedited my, uh, yeah, just falling apart. And in your case, it wasn't some, like if you had been making your own films, that would have been different, but you were turning on the things that you loved and taking that and your feelings about the, the films or the properties and turning that into a product in itself and whether or not what you're in your take on a, on a particular film was, would it would matter whether it was marketable. And if it wasn't, then you would crash. I mean, that sounds terrible. It does sound like it would be a way to kill a love for something for sure to become a professional at that. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Uh, Plus like all, all of these, uh, partners that we had, like, for example, we, we had a, a short-lived uh, partnership with Medium.com, uh, which is a company that I'm convinced still doesn't make money, although I appreciate the effort to try to make long-form reading a profitable business. But, you know, all of the potential partners that we met that would normally make a, a, a company like ours succeed, all of them struggled to make money to the point where the partnership just became no longer profitable because really the only thing that has con continued to uh, be profitable from a business perspective, you know, Buzzfeed still makes all their money from garbage. Uh, Vice is still laying off people. Um, it, it's, it's um, if you're trying to do something that appeals to perhaps humanity's more noble nature, you're just facing a really uphill battle in the way that these algorithms work. Okay, Zero Books readers and viewers, you've reached the end of this uh, interview. Um, but if you want to see more of Jared, you can go over to his YouTube channel. It's Jared Bauer. That's B-A-U-E-R. Uh, right now, he's got an interview with uh, Ben Burgess on his channel. Uh, they're talking about canceling comedians while the world burns and uh, the whole problem of cancel culture uh, from a left perspective. And I, I think that uh, if you like this interview, you will like that one. So you should go and check out uh, Jared Bauer on, on YouTube. Check out his channel. Subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. Uh, click on the bell. Um, think good thoughts. Uh, tweet nice things at me. Uh, you know, whatever you want to do. And the same for Jared. Thanks for watching this Zero Books video. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video. You should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books book club and help us to continue making online content from the left.